I want to invite you to open your Bible with me to the Old Testament book of Numbers. If you're starting at the beginning, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. For this month of November, we're going to be jumping into the middle of the book of November's, uh, Numbers to look at a handful of chapters which show the faithfulness of God even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of the people of God. So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 10. You can also turn in your bulletin if you just turn the page from where you are in our order of worship to follow along with the scripture reading printed there for you. Edward Abbey spent time as a park ranger in what was then Arches National Monument. It's now a national park. This was back in 1956 and 57. The canyon country north of Moab, Utah, was nearly inaccessible. Dirt roads, few visitors. He was the only ranger who lived on site in a plywood and tin trailer. But Edward Abbey loved the beauty of the wilderness. The sunrises, the sunsets, the silence, the solitude. His book about his stint as a ranger became a desert lover's handbook. It, it wasn't originally a bestseller, but once it was found in paperback copies, you would find it lying around in hostels or, or tucked into backpackers' bags. He described the mystery of the wilderness, the aesthetic value, the beauty of wild nature. Now, most readers overlooked his self-described anarchist values, in which he called for the banning of all vehicles of any kind from national parks, the remover of ranger stations, the, the tearing down of visitors' centers. But what he pointed to is that for us, maybe particularly for us as Americans, the therapeutic value of the wilderness, a place to escape, a time to be refreshed. We can still, even today, hear the poetic call of the wild in Abby's words. He, he writes, the desert wears a veil of mystery, motionless and silent. It evokes in us an elusive hint of something unknown, unknowable, about to be revealed. But maybe, maybe the wilderness is only this beautiful when you can leave it after your visit. When we can return to the comforts of society. When we know that, that if we find ourselves in danger, there will be someone who can come to rescue us. See, we want to stop by and see its beauty but we don't want to be trapped in the wilderness. We can agree with Abby when he calls these parks the most beautiful places on earth. But once we snap a few pictures and, and store up a few memories, we're ready to move on to our next adventure. For us, the wilderness is a place of beauty and inspiration. For the people of Israel, in the book of Numbers, the wilderness is meant to be a pathway. This was a temporary place where they were rescued from Egypt to go and meet with God, to worship God, to find out what God would want for them. But it was meant to be then a pathway to the promised land. And yet we'll see here in the book of Numbers, and this isn't a surprise if you've read any of the Bible, the people sin against God. And so the wilderness becomes not a pathway to the promised land, but a place of judgment, a place where water and food are scarce where the people's hearts grumble, they complain, they long to return to the bondage of Egypt. 
Now, the fourth book in our Bibles, we call in English Numbers, which makes sense because if you go back to the very beginning of the book, we're in chapter 10, but if you go back to the opening chapters, they, it's a census, a list of the people of Israel, a, a, a declaration of this is the number of fighting men who can go up and lead us as an army. And so to call it Numbers makes sense, except that the numbers, the counting of people are but a handful of chapters in the overall book. In Hebrew, they take the, the fifth word of the book, which is in the wilderness. Or in English, that's obviously more than one word, but in, in Hebrew, you can capture all that in one word. It, and so the, the book is called in the wilderness, which is perhaps a more helpful description because the people are here in the wilderness at Sinai. They will travel to the wilderness of Paran. They will be in the wilderness. But tragically, they will be trapped in this wilderness for decades because of their sin. And so the wilderness describes not only their physical location, but also their spiritual condition. They are in the wilderness. They are trying to flee from God. And so for this month of November, we're going to look at this section of numbers where the people leave Mount Sinai in order to begin traveling to the promised land. We, we begin in chapter 10, actually, right in the middle of chapter 10, because that's where this geographic break happens in the book. Then we're leaving Sinai. And so we see the, the armies of God being led by God to lead, the, lead them into the promised land. But, but chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14 will show us the disobedience of God's people. Their immediate and continued disobedience in the wilderness. God has rescued Israel from slavery. God protected them from Pharaoh's army. God met them at Sinai and gave them the law. He provided for them a way to bring sacrifices at the tabernacle. He promised to dwell with them. And the people in, in Numbers chapter 9 have celebrated on the first anniversary of the Passover. They have celebrated that as a continued feast to be held annually. That God has rescued his people. And now in Numbers 11 almost a year since their arrival at Sinai, for they've had much to do in receiving the law of God, in building the tabernacle and preparing to go to the promised land. Almost a year since their arrival at Sinai. And a little more than a year, we'll see, since their exodus. The people of Israel leave Sinai to move toward the promised land. And so I'm going to begin reading in Numbers chapter 10 at verse 11. I'm going to read a selection of verses from what you have printed in front of you. Numbers 10, beginning at verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies. And over their company was, was, was Nashon, the son of Amminadab. And over the company of the tribe of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulon was Eliab, the son of Helon. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And now verse 21. Then the Kohathites set out carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. Now jump with me to verse 28. This was the order of march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. 
And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you for the Lord has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go. I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good the Lord will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they set out from the mount of the Lord three days journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Let me pray that God would apply the truth of his word to our lives. Father in heaven, I pray that you would work in us by the power of your word, that your gospel would be clear to us. Lord, that as we read these Old Testament texts, we would not be lost merely in the history or the distance from our own lives, but that we would see the the way in which your word provides comfort and instruction to us today. That we would see how your word provides correction and exposes our sin. Lord, that your spirit would work in us. Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. The people of Israel live between the rescue of the Exodus and the promised land. Between the promise given and then the promise fulfilled. They're waiting on something new. But yet their lives were, were thrown into upheaval as they, as they had to flee Egypt. They're now living in the, the desert under, under uncertain terms. They, their lives filled with chaos and so they wonder when this will end. Now perhaps that is the way we could describe our own lives here at the end of 2020. Waiting for the chaos to end. The uncertainty of a virus. Political upheaval. Cultural instability. Cries on the street for justice. Now the people of Israel became a people who grumbled, who complained. They ignored the promise and presence of God and just wanted their difficulties to end. But that doesn't describe us because we have so much in our lives that we can genuinely complain about. My complaints are legitimate. My grumbling is justified. My anxiety is real. The uncertainty around me is palpable. But do we? As those who have read God's word, who have heard the promises of God, do we ignore God's promises? Do we overlook the presence of God? We live in a moment between the promise given and the promise fulfilled. But that's true not just in 2020. That's been true in every year the church has existed. And and maybe it's appropriate for the Christmas decorations to be up at the wrong time of year. And remember, they're up because our our choir and orchestra are still recording to prepare us for December. But but it's a reminder to us, a a, a tangible picture, that, that we live between the promise when Jesus came, when his kingdom was established, and the, and the fulfillment of that promise when his kingdom will come in all of its power at his return. And so the uncertainty you face 
and that I face is not new. This is the tension that every believer has lived with in every age of her life, that we live between the promise given, the promises of God's presence, and yet we long for its fulfillment, the reality of of God's physical presence, to be in the, the direct and immediate presence of God. We long for his kingdom to come in all its fullness. And so the book of Numbers can be an encouragement to us. Numbers 10, perhaps the most encouraging of the chapters we will read together because we, we have only the hint of unfaithfulness. But here we have the, the presence of God. And that's we're reminded of even just in the context, that we are at Sinai. We are at the mountain of the Lord. This is the place in which God, had, had, had upon rescuing his people, came to meet his people. We know that it's at Sinai that Moses ascended up to the mountain and received the law of God. Not only a law to be, to be pressed into the lives of the people of God, but a law then that provided a way for their sins to be forgiven. It gave them the rules and regulations about how they were to bring sacrifice. It gave them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And in just the chapter which comes before ours in the book of Numbers, we have the, the tabernacle completed. This this movable temple. The the nations had temples built of stone. Israel would, in the promised land, eventually have a temple built of stone. But this is a movable, portable temple, one that they can take with them through the wilderness because they are not meant to stay here. They're meant to go with God. They have celebrated the Passover. On the first anniversary of their rescue from Egypt, they celebrated, at God's command, the Passover, taking a, a lamb and slaughtering it in the place of a son, because remember, on that, on that first night, the angel of the Lord came through Egypt and slaughtered the firstborn of the Egyptians. The only reason the people of Israel were protected is because a lamb had been offered in the place of a son. And so they are reminded that God is with them. God has provided for them. And, and we're, we're told that even in the, the picture of the cloud, the, the physical presence of God shown in this theophany, this appearance of God in a cloud. Look back at verse 11 of Numbers chapter 10. We're told when it happens. We're now 14 months, about 14 months since the time of the Exodus. We're told in verse 11, the cloud then lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And verse 12, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. The only reason the people are moving is because God is moving. God is with them, present among them. And then at the end of the chapter, almost as a, a, bookmark, a bookend to what we read together, we're reminded that God was with them in this cloud. Look at verse 34. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day, whenever they set out from the camp. They move because the cloud moves, but when they move, God is with them, hovering over them, protecting them, protecting them even here in the wilderness. And when we're given this description of the, the people leaving, and I, I didn't read all of it, but, but if you go back and, and look at the whole chapter, you see that the, 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 the nation leaves in, in clusters of three tribes at a time. In the front, you have Moses and Aaron with the Ark of the Lord, and then you have the, the, the tribes. They're led first by the tribe of Judah. The very last tribe that will come is Dan. And in between are the, the priests bringing the tabernacle with them, bringing the, 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 the holy instruments to be used at the time of sacrifice. But we're told that, that at the very front, we have the, the promise that God is with them in the ark. Look at verse 33. 
the summary of the chapter is, so they set out from the Mount of the Lord, three days' journey, and the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. Now, now what is this box, this golden box carried by the, the priests with the angels, with their wings spread over it? This is the throne of God. As one commentator reminds us, a visible throne of God's gracious power. God is with his people. He has made a covenant with them. And so we have the promise here of the presence of God. But in this, in this chapter, we also see the provision of God. Now that's in the very command of God at the beginning. They, they leave because they see the cloud go, but they're given a direct command to leave. Verse 13. They set out for the first time at the command of the Lord by Moses. God is providing for them, giving them direct instructions. He's speaking to them by Moses, through his mediator, through his prophet. God is speaking to his people. And Moses' ministry, it, it looms large in these, opening, uh, in these opening books of the Bible because Moses is the prophet, the one pointing to the great prophet, Jesus. Moses is the mediator of God's people, the one who stands and speaks on God's behalf to the people and then goes to God to plead on the, on the people's behalf. And he's pointing us to the great mediator, Jesus, the one whom Paul will describe in 1 Timothy chapter 2 as the one mediator, the only mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself as a ransom for all. So we see God's provision in speaking to his people and giving them the leader, Moses. But even Moses recognizes that the task given to him is greater than he can handle. And so God provides Hobab. Now, of all the names that I could have read in this chapter, Hobab is actually probably one of the easier ones. Just two syllables, easy enough to get through. He is the son of Reuel, who is a Midianite. Now, Reuel is Moses' father-in-law, so that makes Hobab his brother-in-law. And actually, the, the translators, the, the word father-in-law could be applied to either relationship in the Hebrew. And so they're not really sure. Are we talking about Hobab, the brother-in-law, or are we talking about Ruel, the father-in-law? But, but in either case, the relationship is clear. That, that Moses, because Moses, remember, this isn't his first time in the wilderness. Moses had spent 40 years in the wilderness before being called by God to go to Egypt to lead his people out of slavery. And so Moses here interacts with Hobab, a Midianite, meaning Moses is married to a Midianite, meaning the promises of God extend even to Midianites. But, but what, is, what is Hobab's purpose here? Moses is asking, we need you to come along with us. We don't really know the way we're going. We don't know where we can find the springs. We can find the safety. We don't know where the, the dangers lurk. We need you to come and be our eyes. Now, Hobab initially says, no, 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 I'm, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not going with you. The promises of God aren't promises for me. This isn't my journey. I wasn't with you in the Exodus, and I'm not given a place in the promised land. But Moses pleads with him, we need you to be our eyes for us. And he promises that whatever good, verse 32, whatever good God does for the people of Israel, that same blessing will extend even to a Midianite. Now we know because there's, there's no description that it, it seems that he goes with him. That there's no continued, continued arguing. But, but also, if you jumped ahead to the book of Judges, we know that the descendants of Reuel and the descendants of, of Hobab are Midianites with the people in the land. They have gone up with the people. And so God has, has provided everything his people need. But the whole structure of this 
chapter, the whole setting in the book of Numbers reminds us that we have counted these people. They are going under standards, under, under banners, because they are an army marching into the promised land. We've counted the fighting men. They are an army prepared for battle. And, and so, so maybe when we're in the New Testament, you feel comfortable listening to the preaching here at Faith. Because there, it feels safe. It feels like we're talking about a God of love. But as soon as we jump here into the Old Testament, it feels like, well, wait, wait. There's, there's so much violence and, and vengeance in the Bible. We, we even describe the enemies of God. And so you might think that the, the violence negates the message. That you don't have to listen anymore because this doesn't make sense. This is antiquated and we can set it aside. But, but maybe let me, let me just set the context for us a little so that we can keep listening. I mean, first, who are the enemies of God? We are the enemies of God. You heard it in our, in our assurance of forgiveness that we were the ones alienated from God. We were the ones hostile to God. We were God's enemies. And so it's not merely our, our, by, by the divisions or the, the, the nations in which we live that we've set ourselves up against God. It's, it's every one of us deserves the judgment of God. We will all face God's judgment, either on our own or finding forgiveness in Jesus. And it's also helpful to point out that the, the, the command to go into physical battle was limited here in the Old Testament to, to only when the, the people of God were also a nation governed by God. And so the judgment that he was bringing is a reminder of the judgment we all deserve. And so there is no, no longer today. You can never make the argument as a Christian that, that for the, the cause of the gospel, I need to threaten or kill another. No, how are enemies changed? How are enemies conquered in the gospel? By announcing good news to them so that they can receive this good news and find forgiveness. And so violence is not justified for the purpose of converting or threatening enemies. Enemies are now reconciled to God by faith, by trusting in him. But it's also helpful for us to notice that God's plan, even as he sends his army into the promised land, God's plan has always included the nations. People from all nations, not merely the physical descendants, the biological descendants of Abraham coming to faith, but the nations coming to faith. And that's why the reminder that Hobab Reu are included here among the people of God, not born of Abraham, but receiving the same blessing. Whatever good the Lord will do for the people of Israel, he will do for them. This message is a generous and welcoming message. So we've seen the, the presence of God, the provision of God, and, and we're reminded of the promises of God. We see it most directly in, in Moses' argument to Hobab. Look, look with me back at, at verse 29. We are setting out for the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. The promise of God that the promised land is yours. Why do we call it the promised land? Because it was promised by God. I will give it to you. And keep reading in verse 29. Come with us and we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. The Lord has promised good to Israel. The Lord is with us. The Lord is leading us. The Lord is providing for us. The Lord has promised us. And those words maybe are, are words that, that you already have memorized. Maybe not because you memorize them in Numbers 10, but because you hear them in the hymn, Amazing Grace. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. 
So there is the promise of God given to us here, even in Numbers 10, even in the wilderness. And we see the promises of God that that Moses claims at the very end of what I read, verses 35 and 36. So that each time the people get up to go, when when they're led by the cloud, when the ark sets out, Moses, Moses says in verse 35, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Moses is saying to the people, in the hearing of the people, that God is the one who leads us. We go where God leads. The battle here belongs to the Lord. And so, Lord, let your enemies be scattered. Let them flee. For any victory we gain is found only in the work of God. And so when the people rise up to go out, Moses cries out for God to arise. They will only go when God goes. They will only go where God goes. But when they come to to rest... When the ark of the Lord rests, when the cloud stops, then verse 36, Moses will say, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. It's a clinging to the promises of God. God, you are with us. God, your promises are true. And that's a prayer we can still pray today. That's actually the way the Bible ends as a whole. We're here in the, the beginning of the Bible. But if you flipped all the way to the very end, to the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, to the very last chapter of the Bible, to the very final verses, Jesus himself makes the promise, I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. See, we live between the promise given and the promise fulfilled. Jesus has come. The Savior came to earth. He gave himself for us. And yet we live awaiting the coming promise, the promise in which Jesus himself says, surely I am coming soon. And then the very next words of Scripture are the prayer of the church. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And maybe that's in the, in the chaos of your life. You, you can only cling to those handful of words. Come, Lord Jesus. Maybe in the uncertainty that you face. Maybe your prayers this week are, are so, so flooded by, by anxiety and uncertainty that, that all you can cling to are those words. Come, Lord Jesus. But that's a clinging to the promise of God. Because our victory is not found in what we can accomplish. Our victory here in the words of Moses rests upon God. Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Our victory is found in Jesus. In Jesus alone. He is the perfect sacrifice. The people bring sacrifices into the tabernacle, but Jesus is the last and perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the true mediator, the one who stands between us and God. Moses can only plead on behalf of the people of God, and yet Jesus intercedes fully by pouring out his blood, by giving his life so that we can find forgiveness. We gain victory not by military battles, We gain victory not by political ballot. We gain victory in Jesus Christ alone. And that's the words that we have from the Apostle Paul. In that great chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, which reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus, we're reminded of the work of Christ, that we have victory not because of anything we could do, but because of what Jesus has already done. Our victory is in Jesus Christ In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26, the Apostle Paul describes the enemy that we face as death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he gives us the hope 
that that enemy has been destroyed by the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died so that your sins could be forgiven. Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering death itself. And so the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 reaches that crescendo where Paul quotes the, the words, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the promises that we have in the book of Numbers are that God is with us. God provides for us. God's promises are true. And so put your trust in Jesus. He is your victory. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God is here with us in our midst. He is with us now. He is with us even as we walk through the wilderness. God is with you. Let me pray for the application of God's word to our hearts. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your gospel. I pray that you would, would work in our hearts, that we would be able to, to find our hope in you. Father, I pray that as we come to the, the table, which is prepared for us by Jesus himself, that we would find our hope in the gospel, that we would turn from, from any trust we might have in ourselves to put our trust wholly in Jesus the Savior. Lord, for those who have listened today or who listen to this live stream later, who don't have faith in you, I pray that you, by the work of your Spirit, would grant us faith to put our trust in you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.